Welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Michal Stein. Lydia Abraha will be back next week. Today I'm joined by two RRJ colleagues. First, we have Catherine Singh, the online managing editor. Hi, everyone. And we also have Jordan Curry, who is here with us last week as well. Jordan is one of our copy editors. Hello. Jordan and Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. This week, it is everyone's favorite or least favorite Hallmark holiday, Valentine's Day. Movie studios release their requisite rom-coms. Fancy restaurants release prefix menus where couples can shell out $50 a person to sit knee-to-knee with a bunch of other couples crammed into a small, intimate space. We thought this week would be a good opportunity to explore how women's desire gets covered in the media. So before we launch into the interviews, um, I wanted to talk to you two about uh, some of your thoughts about how women's desire gets covered in the media. For me, to some extent, uh, it doesn't get covered still. Um, And I'm thinking in respects to maybe in newspapers or magazines, I think it's still very much something that's kind of taboo, which which makes it really exciting on the off chance that it is covered. Um, I think somewhere, though, where it is making strides or where it's becoming something that's more normalized to talk about is media in terms of films, TV shows, and celebrities. I know when I was kind of thinking about this topic, immediately I thought of someone who I really like, um, who's Miley Cyrus. Recently, I think it's been really cool, and I don't want to put it to like, oh, she got married and now she's very free with her sexuality, because I think that's something that she's always been pretty consistent about. But I find that recently she's been quite unapologetic in discussing her desire and her sex life with her husband. And before, I mean, she had an entire song, Adore You, that uh, the entire music video was about self-love. It was about uh, masturbation, which we don't really get to see out there. And I mean, just this week, she was at the premiere for Isn't It Romantic, Liam Hemsworth's new film. And uh, she posted a really cheeky thing on her Instagram talking about giving and receiving oral sex from your partner. Um, and she just did it really cheekily. She was wearing a gorgeous dress, and it was kind of just like a normal thing for her to post, which I thought was really cool. Jordan, what are some of your thoughts? Um, I'm inclined to agree with Catherine in that I don't think female desire is um, talked about as much. If it is in the media, it's more of like a joke, or it's the punchline, or um, it's fetishized to fit the male gaze. Um, but one area where I think we're making a little bit more progress would probably be um, columns or just freelance journalists that are open to talking about it. I know, for example, broadly, um, that publication, they have a lot of really great uh, columns and podcasts surrounding sex um, that are written by women and trans people and non-binary people. Um, For example, there's Sex Machina, which is by uh, Maria Yagoda, and that column really goes in-depth about um, exploring sexuality and, you know, the use of sex toys and things that I think would be really taboo for women to talk about. So there are some strides in that regard, um, and I think as time progresses, women are getting a little bit more confident with talking about that, but of course there's always room for improvement, I think. One place that that has such a fun and open discussion about women's desire is the podcast Thirst Aid Kit, which is hosted by uh, Bim Adewemni and Nicole Perkins. It was a BuzzFeed podcast. Um, obviously, 
that has been impacted by the huge amount of layoffs at BuzzFeed, and I think they're looking for a new home. But I think what they do that's so interesting is that they flip the male gaze. So it it's taking like a, a female gaze look at these male celebrities, actors, singers, musicians, whatever, and kind of dissecting what makes them worthy of being a thirst object, a, thir- <laughs> a thirst object being uh, an object of desire. And I think that they also kind of flip the narrative on what it means to be a desirable person. Like, I think they kind of go outside the regular tropes of masculinity and understanding the fact that mainstream narratives of what is attractive isn't necessarily what everyone finds attractive. But I think that's a, a space and a type of conversation that I think really um, pushes the conversation forward. So with all of this in mind, um, we talked to a couple journalists about ways that they are breaking out of the stereotype of talking about women's desire and media. Laura Hensley is a national lifestyle reporter for Global News and used to be an entertainment writer for Flair. One series she helped start, Alternative Firsts, looks at sexual milestones in people's lives beyond having sex for the first time, like the first time having sex after an abortion. I should mention that this interview acknowledges the existence of sex and mentions sexual assault. We'll hear from Laura in a moment. With me right now is Laura Hensley, the national lifestyle reporter at Global News and a former entertainment writer at Flair. Laura, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. After coming to Flair in 2017, what was your goal with the sex and relationships column? Um, I think one of the best parts about working at Flair was that our audience was mostly millennial women. And within that, um, we really had an ability to talk about sex and relationships in a way that was really catered towards our readers. So when I was um, tasked with taking over our sex and relationship content, I really wanted to have conversations that felt honest and true and reflected the issues that people my age were going through. So when I'd hear conversations online or with friends or even things I was reading in the news, I wanted to have those same conversations in a really thoughtful, meaningful way. And so that was one of my objectives with the type of stuff that we did. I wanted to provide context and have really smart analysis, but I also wanted it to be um, reflective of real life issues that our readers were sort of facing. Something I found interesting about your work is that you sometimes brought in issues from your personal life. I'm thinking specifically about the piece you wrote in March of 2018, where you wrote about um, sleeping in a separate bed from your partner. And I'm wondering uh, what it was like to get personal like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think initially there's always some hesitation um, with how much you want to share if you're a journalist. I mean, working at Flair was a little bit different than working in a newsroom where I had the ability to interject myself, you know, into personal essays and to share my thoughts and my opinions in that way. So when I wrote that piece about, you know, I live with my partner, but we don't share a bed or we don't sleep in the same bed. I was a little nervous. I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm putting, you know, a personal piece of information out there for the world to see. Um, But then once I started talking to people and I was doing some research and I realized that this actually is an issue that many couples face, I realized that it was my own fear or my own, you know, 
shame around something that was preventing me from talking about it. So once I realized that I was actually like had some stigma around myself and talking about it, I was like, okay, and in order to have these conversations, we have to move past this fear. So I, you know, when I wrote it, I actually got quite a bit of positive feedback through other couples and other women who were saying, hey, we did the same thing. Like, oh my gosh, my partner snores. I can't stand sleeping in the same bed as them this totally resonated or I shared this with a friend who's going through the same thing you know it opened a dialogue and I think it made me realize at least that sometimes the things we don't want to talk about the personal things um are things that a lot of people are also going through. So when we do share our own experiences, we're actually opening a conversation. And I think that's so important when it comes to sex and relationships because everyone thinks, oh, this doesn't happen to anyone else but me. But then you talk about it and you're like, wait, this happens to a lot of people on top of me. So it's sort of a comforting feeling. Am I correct that the alternative first series was your, you started that? Yeah, so I worked, um, so I was the managing or handling editor on that series, and so I worked with um, a really talented journalist, Danielle, uh, who uh, interviewed different women about and got their stories about their alternative first time. Yeah, so it was a project, um, a passion project, I guess, but yeah, we developed the ideas of what first times we were going to feature. And how did the idea for that project come about? I think, okay, so we used to have these brainstorming sessions when I was at Flair, and they were really great because we would talk about things that we were thinking about, that we heard our friends talking about, or that we were reading about, and we would talk about, okay, how do we want to tackle it? How do we want to tell these stories? And so when I was um, managing the sex and relationship content, I would constantly be, you know, reading other stuff on the internet, I'd be really trying to be tapped into what was happening. And I think the idea for the alternative first time package came around the idea, okay, well, losing your virginity is one experience um, when it comes to sexuality, but there are so many other significant experiences in your life. Um, And I think especially if you're someone who, you know, has sex for the first time after a milestone, like, you know, giving birth or um, has dealt with something, you know, more traumatizing, like sexual assault, like you then have to relearn almost how to navigate sex. And so when you talk about losing your virginity, you're only really talking about this very, very small portion of a person's sex life. And so I think the idea came out of wanting to tap into these stories that we weren't hearing enough about. There's so much focus, especially, you know, growing up and talking about women's sexuality. It's all around virginity. We're obsessed with virginity, losing it, not losing it. Like, just, you know, what does that mean? But there is a larger conversation I think that needed to be had. And so once we decided what are some other milestones that a woman might experience in her life, we kind of narrowed it down and then we sourced out and we did a call and we we spoke to some really, um, uh, really powerful women and they shared their experiences. And I think in reading those, I learned that, you know, a lot of these experiences actually held more meaning for these people than loss of virginity did, which was really interesting to me. How do you think that creating that kind of space, a space where people can talk about really vulnerable firsts in their life, like you were saying, the first time having sex in, after sexual assault or, or after becoming sober. How do you think that creating that kind of space can push the conversation off the page or offline? Yeah, I think 
for me at least, the goal in talking about these things is to just erase awareness about them because it's really challenging to have conversations around sexuality, um, you know, as it pertains to sexual assault or as it pertains to having these sexual experiences that maybe not every person has. So if one thing, I think this is, you know, a bit, a bit of a generalization, but, you know, at some point in life, most people will, will have sex. But if you talk about, you know, say, for example, having sex for the first time after having an abortion, that is so hard to talk about. And there is so much emotion and experience and like mental and physical, you know, factors at play that I think in creating a space for those through telling those stories in this, in this first time package. Um, I think it was a acknowledging that this happens and this is normal. And this is something that a lot of people might struggle with or not know how to navigate, but also b saying that like, we need to talk more about this because even now, a lot of my friends, there's certain subjects that we just don't talk about. And there's certain things that I know people have confided in me, but they've only done so because they know that I have a bit more of an open mind or I, I try at least to be completely like, you know, transparent and always open to having tougher conversations around sex. So these are things that a lot of people are dealing with, but there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of secrecy and there's a lot of like uncomfortable feelings around it. So by, by giving attention on the page or by, you know, doing a series that highlights that, I think the important thing is saying, hey, we know this stuff happens. We know it's challenging, but we want to start a conversation. Even if we don't know how to fully have this conversation, we want to start it. And we want people to know that it's okay and it's normal. And you're not alone if you've gone through, you know, any of these, any of these things. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your May 2018 piece about DJ Khaled and his refusal to perform oral sex on his wife, and <laughs> which I thought it was a very funny and excellent article for everyone listening. Thank we you. will link to it in <laughs> the notes. Um, so, and something that I really liked about it was that it, it kind of framed DJ Khaled and sex through through the female gaze and kind of flipping the typical male gaze that we often look at women's sexuality through in kind of mainstream conversations. Do you think that um, flipping that perspective is something uh, media should actively be trying to do? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that bothered me so much about the Jane Callis remarks was that it was, in my opinion, so ridiculous. He was, you know, seemingly so repulsed by the idea that he had to, like, go down on his wife or perform oral sex, but he would expect that because, you know, he said something dumb like men are king or I am king or I'm a provider or something, you know, super ridiculous. So I think that it's important to challenge those narratives because they sort of speak to the larger ideas about masculinity, about toxic masculinity and how women's bodies are viewed. And so kind of using a female perspective and a female lens um, and sort of saying, okay, dude, well, you think that your junk is okay, but, you know, female bodies are repulsive. Like, what's up with that? Like, it was sort of highlighting, I think, the... um, the obvious 
oh my gosh, what's the word I'm thinking of? The, the hypocrisy in, in his views. It's so, it was like he put more value on himself than he put on a woman. Um, and so DJ Khaled, I think, is a little bit of a, of a tool. Um, excuse the pun. But I think that him saying those comments so publicly actually started a really interesting conversation. Like, you had all these celebrities. I think, like, Smash Mouth, the band we haven't heard of in, like, a million years, came out and, like, this DJ Khaled. Um, Evan Rachel Wood, I believe, came out and sort of said, like, hey, dude, you're missing out on something. Great. Um, so you had all these celebrities. Um, chiming in and I think that hopefully shed light and being like these views are not always the smartest things to say out loud because people don't always they're not going to agree with this and it's okay if people don't agree but it's important to question why do you have these thoughts and how can they be challenged and how can we look at them in a different way um, and I think there were so many like essays and you know the personal pieces that came out after that, that really, you know, great, lent some great observations to him. But um, to the point of having a female perspective, I think it's necessary because if you don't challenge views like that, how are they ever going to change? I mean, I don't know what DJ Khaled thinks now if he even cared about all the backlash, but hopefully he had a conversation with his wife. And if I was his wife, I'd be like, you cannot say or do things like that. Those are very offensive views to share publicly. Laura, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It was a pleasure having you on. No worries. Thanks for chatting. I had a great time. Jamie Green is a freelance writer, editor, podcast producer, and writing teacher, and she writes the romance fiction review column for the New York Times Review of Books. Romance novels can get a bit of a bad reputation. They're smut. They're vapid. They're not real literature. But what does it say about the genre that the New York Times added a column specifically dedicated to romance fiction? Here's Mikhail's interview with Jamie Green. With me on the phone right now is Jamie Green, the romance novel reviewer for the New York Times, and she's speaking to us from New York. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Jamie, why were you drawn to romance novels? You know, a lot of romance readers start reading romance when they're pretty young, like in their early teens. Usually they um, have a mom or an older relative who read romance, and they just pick up whatever is on that reader's shelf, or a friend recommends a book or something like that. I actually came to romance pretty late for a romance reader. I didn't probably didn't start reading romance until... I was in my early 30s, I guess, where I was working a job where I was editing and commissioning lots of writing about books, and one of the genres we were focusing on was romance. And I was like, well, I should get to know this genre that I haven't really read before. I've realized since then that some of what I loved to read when I was a teenager, while not technically romance, did set me up to love romance. So it's something that I was primed for then, but really only got into in the last several years. And what have you learned about how we understand female desire from reading and reviewing so many romance novels? Oof, that's, that's a really big question. Um, I mean, romance probably focuses on female desire more than any other genre of fiction or of writing. Um, you know, male literary novelists are, are very often... Um, criticized for their lack of a sense of interiority in their female characters or the way that love stories 
exist to further male characters' plots and, you know, just the objectification of women that comes along with that, not to paint with a broad brush, but that's an issue that comes up a lot in literary fiction. Whereas in romance, um, because most of the authors are women, most of the readers are women, the focus is on in romance where the main characters are a man and a woman um is really on the woman's experience she becomes an avatar for the reader and her desire and experience of sex and romance and love is really the central engine of the plot rather than like telling us any particular things about women's desire what's really notable about romance is just how much it centers that experience and and makes it an end into itself rather than to either um, a male character's experience or some other plot development, whether it be positive or negative for the female character. What do you think the New York Times adding a regular column that reviews uh, romance novels more regularly says about perceptions of romance as a genre? I mean, I think it's hugely legitimizing. For better or for worse, the Times is one of the, uh, you know, arbiters of taste in the literary world. And for a long time, the Times has reviewed other genre fiction. They've had a sci-fi fantasy column and a crime and mystery and thriller column. For a really long time, they regularly write about YA and children's books and started up a, um, a monthly graphic novel and comics column around the same time that my column started. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, the Times and all reviewing outlets make their decisions not based on what's commercial or sells a lot, but based on what's interesting to write about. What is there something interesting to say about these books and what books, you know, need to be written about either because they're important in cultural conversation, there's an interesting point of view in them, or because that's the way that readers are going to find out about them. Romance is a very commercial genre. The books are everywhere. And reviews haven't, especially reviews in, you know, uh, outlets as opposed to blogs and websites, haven't really been a primary driver of awareness of these books. Um, and so I think it's really meaningful that the Times, by starting this column, has said, like, these books are worthy of discussion. These books belong up here on the shelf with these other great genres and with literary fiction, which is, you know, unto itself a genre. Um, because romance has really been looked down on for its entire history and often still is. People make fun of it. People deride it for all sorts of reasons. And I think that having space for it in the Times Book Review counters some of that negativity. What are some common misconceptions that people have about romance novels? For example, there's uh, probably dozens of genres that romance could link up with, like... um, fantasy, as you were saying, or, or literary fiction, but uh, people often write them off as chiclet or, or like mommy porn just because they're in the romance section. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the first misconceptions that I often encounter are that like Fabio is still on all the book covers or the books are demeaning towards women. And certainly in the past, romance, you know, 
even as progressive as it might be, romance is still a product of its times. And so when sexual politics were, were less empowering for women, romance novels were too. Older romance novels don't age super well. But romance today is in the hands of a lot of authors, very feminist, very empowering, very consent-focused, very focused on what the women want and their enjoyment, um, both in and out of the bedroom. Which brings me to another misconception, which is that romance novels are all about sex. They're not. <laughs> um, a lot of them have it. But erotica is a you know subgenre or separate genre. Romance is really focused on the development of a romantic relationship between the main characters. And of course, sex is very often a part of that. But it's not just there for titillation. You know, if you think about um, your own romantic relationships, you learn a lot about the other person through sex, through physicality. It teaches you about their personality and how they care for you and what they're like and, and, you know, how good your relationship is. So not all romance novels include sex and not all of the sex is graphic or vividly described, but it is in there in a lot of books and it's not just there for titillation. You know, it's there because it informs character and advances the plot too. Um, another misconception about romance novels is that they're poorly written they're not like there's some really really fantastic writing out there you know things that make me laugh out loud make me cry beautiful writing and um i just i wish that more people appreciated so in your uh column on september 20th uh you wrote every romance novel is a is a kind of fantasy whether it features an impossibly wealthy duke or a cute guy who knows how to talk about his feelings it can be escapist or aspirational, extravagantly hyperbolic or easily plausible, but it's still idealized. So what do you think it is about the moment that we're living through that makes this idealized version of life so appealing? I think that I think that the last couple of years of politics in America have made a lot of women feel bad, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Like, obviously, not everyone is on the same page about that, but... Um, a lot of advancements and equality and protections that women have taken for granted are being revealed to be much more precarious than we might have thought. And a lot of um, societal parity is, you know, turning out to not be so steady. And so I think reading a book where a woman's desires and autonomy are centered and celebrated is really important and you know, a world that a lot of readers need to spend some time in these days. I also think, you know, one of the um, defining characteristics of romance, like one of the definitions of the genre, is the happy ending, that the main couple ends up together, and whether that's happily ever after or just, uh, you know, happily for now, there's a happy ending. And when the world is stressful and unpleasant, that's something that is is really feels good to read. You know, like I personally don't have the emotional fortitude for really harrowing books right now. I feel like the world is pretty harrowing, and I I like books that feel if if not books that make me feel better, books that don't make me feel worse. And reading a romance almost always makes you feel better. Jamie, thank you so much for speaking with me today. 
Thanks so much. We're doing things a little differently in our pull quote section this week. The Ryerson Review of Journalism is actually the subject of the story. We're not just the people writing the stories this week. Jill Abramson was the former executive editor of the New York Times, and she wrote a book called The Merchants of Truth. Ironically, it has come to light over the last few weeks that there are passages in the book that seem to be plagiarized. One of those passages came from an RRJ article from 2005 by Nicole Weeks. So our pull quotes this week are actually going to just be the passages that she wrote and the passage that it seems to be lifted from. And I have Catherine saying again, of course. So Catherine, can you tell us a little bit more about this story? Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, um, Jill Abramson, the former executive editor of the New York Times, recently released her book, Merchants of Truth. Um, In the days before the book was actually released to the public, a Vice News correspondent, Michael Moynihan, shared a Twitter thread um, from his personal social media account um, making allegations of plagiarism towards Abramson. Um, Specifically, he was saying that there were certain passages within select chapters that he had looked at, and he had noticed that there were quite a few similarities between some of the passages in Abramson's book and um, passages from other works um, and by authors who were not Abramson. So, um, and he had noticed this himself because he had seen an advanced copy of the book and it had initially been brought to his attention and the chapters themselves had been brought to his attention because um, I, I guess in an earlier version of the book, um, Abramson had made some, had made a mistake um, when referring to one of Moynihan's colleagues um, whom she'd interviewed. So that's kind of what drew him to the passages, first of all. Um, And as you mentioned, one of the passages was from a 2005 article uh, from the Ryerson Review of Journalism from Nicole Weeks. So that was obviously really interesting to see um, and to be a part of the news cycle. Um, And I think it's important to note that um, in a kind of a follow-up interview that Abramson did on CNN, she said that it was a discrepancy in footnotes that was the problem, that several um, of the outlets that had been alleged to have been plagiarized from, including the RRJ, were actually referenced in her footnotes, but had just been mixed up or had been put in a separate chapter. Um, and so we did we bought Merchants of Truth. And it is important to note that the the Ryerson Review of Journalism, upon our own review, is not mentioned anywhere in the book. Um, At least at that time, it wasn't. Um, And another thing I think that's important to note is, as of right now, uh, she hasn't reached out to anyone currently on the masthead at the RRJ or the author of the piece from 2005, Nicole Weeks. So we're going to keep on this story. And Jill Abramson, if you're listening, feel free to give us a call. We'd love to chat with you. So for pull quotes this week, let's let's read the passage from the book and the uh, passage that it came from. For context, this article was about Gavin McInnes, who is now a well-known alt-right figure. He was one of the co-founders of Vice. And uh, that's what they're talking about here. Um, So my pull quote this week is from Bigot or Champion of Truth, um, which is from the 2005 article from the Ryerson Review of Journalism by Nicole Weeks. In August 2003, McInnes wrote a column in The American Conservative, a magazine run by Pat Buchanan. 
In the magazine, he called young people a bunch of knee-jerk liberals, a phrase McInnes and his cronies use often, who'll believe anyone with dark skin over anyone with light skin. He laments the liberal views of most of the people who pick up his magazine, saying they're brainwashed by communist propaganda. And my pull quote this week is the passage from Jill Abramson's book, Merchants of Truth. This is on page 50. He wrote a column in The American Conservative, a magazine run by Pat Buchanan, calling young people a bunch of knee-jerk liberals, a phrase McInnes and his ilk often used, who would believe anyone with dark skin over anyone with light skin. He lamented the liberal views of his magazine's readers, saying they were brainwashed by communist propaganda. That's it for Pull Quotes this week. Pull Quotes is produced by Lydia Abraha and by me, Michal Stein. Thank you so much to Catherine Singh and Jordan Curry for also producing this episode. Thanks to Laura Hensley and Jamie Green for joining us today. Thank you to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you learned something on Pull Quotes today, please leave a rating in iTunes and tell a friend about our show. You can find me on Twitter at Michal Stein too. Uh, Catherine and Jordan, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Catherine E. Singh. And you can find me on Twitter at Jord underscore Curry. From all of us at the Ryerson Review of Journalism, we'd like to wish you a happy and factually correct Valentine's Day. We're taking a break next week for Reading Week, so we'll see you in two weeks on Pull Quotes. Quotes.